dear. Oh, powerful stuff, this organic vindaloo. Oh. 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 Burson, see the lads get double helpings if the wind drops, will you? <laughs> This week, my guest is the actor Jeffrey Holland. Jeffrey has one of those instantly recognizable faces from a career largely carved out in sitcoms. He's best known as Spike Dixon, the rather third rate camp comic in one of the biggest shows of the 80s, the aforementioned Heidi High. Uh, he also starred as James Twelve Trees in You Rang My Lord and Cecil in Oh Dr. Beeching. In 2001, he, along with John Glover, Andrew Seekham, and Christopher Timothy, appeared at a, a Dirt Mags produced show, Goon Again, celebrating the Goon Show's half century. Uh, and Jeffrey chiefly performed the Peter Sellers parts in the show, which was drawing together elements from earlier Goon Show scripts. And what resulted was a, a very warm, exuberant, and fitting tribute to the Goons. I spoke to Jeffrey about that and also other bits of his career, and we kicked off with him telling me about something he'd watched on the never bettered Talking Pictures TV. Well, I watched Pet the Sellers on, uh, on Sunday afternoon in, in the smallest show on earth. It was on Talking Pictures TV. Mm, and mm. Uh, Harry played in that, Mr. Quill, the projectionist in the old cinema. He was got, he got a grey wig on, a grey eyebrows and moustache, and he was doing old acting. Yes. You know, like, yes. He, did, like he did so well. And uh, it was it struck me, the character he was doing, it was almost the forerunner to Clive, Clive Dunn's Corporal Jones. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was he was doing that same sort of voice, you know, like that. Well, and, that's that's a good point. Yeah, because um, and he was he was Dunn saw that and, and, and nicked the idea, you know. But <laughs> Playing old men for years anyway, since he was 17, he'd been 70. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, um, Sellers would have been what he'd have been 32 when he made that film, I think. Well, 1957, yeah, yeah. he'd yeah. have been 32. Um, I mean, Clive Dunn, that's a good, that's a good sort of jumping off point because I understand that you first got working with Crofton Perry through the Dad's Army stage show. I did indeed, yes. I was recruited into that through an audition I didn't want to go to. You know, and it's wonderful, one of the most wonderful things in life, you know, when you turn a corner, you didn't even know there was a corner. Mm. And it, it changed my life. I didn't want to go to this audition at all. I was enjoying myself. I was at Chichester down doing the festival in 75. Yeah. And I got a call to go up to London to audition for... Uh, Crofton Perry and Roger Redfarm was staging it and I'd worked with him in rep so he'd asked for me because he knew I could be quite useful to the show and uh, I went up you know I'd got nothing prepared I was in a real foul mood <laughs> absolutely nothing ready at all to, to offer them and when I got there I was given a script to look at so I thought at least I could read something from this and uh, and I found in the script what I was thumbing through you know a song uh, which was a parody of yes we have no bananas hmm sung by Walker, the Spiv. So I got through the audition. I was, I was getting on with it. And, I, you know, they were laughing. And I was, I was feeling better about myself. You know, my self-esteem had gone up considerably. Then I got mm. to the song bits. I said, well, look, I found this in the script. Uh, do you mind if I do it with a book in my hand? They said, no, of course not. So I fixed the key with the pianist. And we, we sang this Yes, We Have No Bananas parody. And they, they were rolling about laughing. And I said, I got cocky. And I said to David and Jimmy, I said, you, you enjoyed that, didn't you? And they said, yes, we did, actually, we really did. And I said, well, you wrote it. You know, but they said, yes, we, we wrote it down in longhand, gave it to the typist to type up, but we haven't seen it since. And we've never heard it. So, you know, that was me doing a, a first for them. And uh, I got the job. And that's as simple as that. I didn't want to go to that audition. And I got a job that changed my life. Absolutely. I 
first became aware of you, of course, like I guess most people. Um, oh, by by the way, I was looking at, uh, at your IMDb page, and yeah. I noticed that your first, I think your first speaking role on television was an episode of Dixon of Belt Green. Was. Um, and I checked. Uh, it was actually it was broadcast about a week before I was born. <laughs> that, that episode, seventy four, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I first became aware of you, of course, through Heidi High. Yes, of course. Which um, rather neatly began first day of the eighties, didn't it? Yes, it, well, it, it, yes. We we recorded the pilot uh, in October seventy nine, and they they broadcast it on New Year's Day, nineteen eighty, the first day of the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that boded rather well, I think. And I, I want to talk. I want to come back and talk about that and Heidi High specifically. But before I do, and I, and by the way, Jeff, uh, do you don't mind, do don't mind me calling you Jeff, do you? Jeff, please. Everyone yeah. Um, by the way, I do tend to go all over the place. You know, the the, the conversation will go off in all directions. Okay, I'll so stay, stay with you. <laughs> um, okay. There's. I, I want to say eight words to you. All right, and I and I just want to hear your reaction. Okay. okay? Claire's throat. Strides for the Omi with the Naf Raya. <laughs> Are you being served? Yeah. With the hippie haircut. <laughs> oh, that I'm a huge Are you Being Served fan. And that is probably that episode, which is, I think it's called The Old Order Changes. That's that, right. that is, yeah, that is my favorite Are You Being Served episode of all time. And that scene with you and Frank Thornton is probably yeah. the best scene of that episode. <laughs> it's almost identically on caftans and Afro wig. <laughs> um, yeah. The way the way you say then pant me man. Yeah. <laughs> Very difficult to say that. Peace, man. Love. <laughs> that as well. You have trousers? Far as the eye can see. Then pant me man. Claybone? You call Stevie Baby? <laughs> Strides for the Omi with a naff <laughs> Wish me luck, Dick. Hit him with a tank, Clay. <laughs> I haven't understood a single word for seven days. <laughs> Stay with it, Ernest, or it could be goodbyes, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but but a complete. I didn't realize that was you for the longest time. Really? So, I, so I'd I'd see that episode. I don't know when I first saw that episode, but I'd tape them because they were repeated when I was growing up, and I didn't realize that was you for the longest time. And then I, I must have just must have just been that I was looking at the end credits and recognized your name. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because to be to be fair, you've got the glasses, you've got the big Afro wig. The glasses are my own glasses at the time. Oh, okay, okay. I've always worn glasses. But, I, but at at the time, I would have, as I say, I would have known you as Spike. Yeah, from Heidi High. Um, but I mean, did people did people ever talk to you much about? Because you were in now you being served twice, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was in Angel Footman twice as well. Oh uh, yeah, I've been rewatching some of those recently. They they do hold up despite despite big. some of their time kind of issues, if you like, that, that they do hold up. The big issue was Michael Bates blacking up as an Indian. Yeah. Because he was born in India and he spoke Urdu and he spoke Hindi. He spoke the dialects because he grew up with it. And yes. everybody was more capable. It was him. Because mm, mm. it's white, you know, there's, there's all this um, hoo-ha about it. Mm. There, were, there weren't many good Indian actors around in the 70s when they, they were making that series. You know, David Croft did, did employ what Indian actors were available, but they, they just weren't very good. Mm. They haven't got the experience, but they, you know, like they have now. You know, you've got some wonderful Indian actors now that are around, but at the time, it just wasn't the case. The big revelation for me, having not seen It Ain't Half Hot Mum since I was a kid, and as I say, re-watching some re relatively recently, um, how good um, Windsor Davis is in that role. Oh, yes. Absolutely fantastic. The timing, his comedy timing is... It was, it was second to none. It perfect. But, um, yeah, Heidi High... Spike is... Uh, right. I, I think Heidi High, to a certain degree, is all about relationships. Yes, absolutely. Um, because uh, because you've got you've got obviously Ted and Spike, which to me is kind of like a married couple. 
yeah. with, with with Spike being in the cast in the role of the long suffering wife, I suppose. That's, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, then you got Barry and Yvonne, of course, which um, those well Barry in particular is is a is a real favorite character of mine. Um, his his permanent hangdog expression. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got Jeffrey Fairbrother and Gladys, and later um, squadron leader. Is it squadron leader Dempster? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Clive. Clive um, but 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 let's be fair. I think most people, I think for for, for most people, the 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 Fairbrother years or the Fair Jeffrey Fairbrother. Yeah, is, is the stronger. He was character. one. I mean, he was absolutely wonderful because he was really, really was a fish out of water, but the most talented actor. And he took what lines David and Jimmy gave him and he made them totally real. He made the character totally believable. And um, not that David Griffith didn't when he came in. He did he had a bit, very big boots to fill, but it was a complete reversal of, of the role. Mm -hmm. uh, Simon's years will always be remembered as the, as the best, I think the favourite with all the viewers. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you, you had Mr. Partridge and um, yes. uh, Fred Quilly. Fred, that's right. Yeah, because they 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 were almost like a married couple in a way. With <laughs> you smell of horses, <laughs> <laughs> good clean smell. He says. <laughs> By the way, because Felix Bonus was famously a warm up man, wasn't he? Yes, um, he he warmed all David's shows up. So, so right, so he, I was going to ask you that. So he he did the warm up for Heidi High as well, did he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He did. He went back. He did all the dad's armies. Bill Pertwee helped out with dad's army, but Felix was recruited in and, and sort of stayed in all David shows. With dad's army, Angel Fox, you know, I being served and Heidi High, and you yeah. remember as well because you know they gave him a part in it. And what about your relationship with um, Paul Shane? How did that develop? Wonderful, <laughs> you know, it was just magic. Um, the the first, I'll tell you this story about the first day I ever met him. Uh, they'd already cast me as Spike in Heidi High back in 79 when they, when they were writing it in the sort of middle, early summer months of 79. Uh, they were struggling to find a Ted Bovis. And they, Jimmy found Paul on Coronation Street. He saw him playing Alf Roberts' boss and, and he rang David up and said, have you got Coronation Street on? He said, no. So we'll have a look. I think we found Ted Bovis. Anyway, they called Paul Shane down to London because he lived in Rotherham. They called him down to London to to read a couple of scenes with with me with me, uh, and uh, he was he was ch chatting with Jimmy and David in the rehearsal room, and I was called in to, to meet him. And as I walked in, walked into this huge rehearsal room, he was standing in the middle of the floor, looking totally lost, bless him. Mm. Uh, and uh, I walked towards him with my hand out, and said, "Hello, Paul. Lovely to meet you. My name's Jeff. How are you doing?" And all that. And he, he took my hand and he shook his and he smiled. I mean, and then he looked at me rather sideways, you know. And I thought, what's the matter? And he looked at me and he said, have we met before? Have we worked together before? And I said, no, 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 because I would have remembered, you know. <laughs> what he saw then was what happened for me too. It was the instant chemistry between us. Something went ping, something went click. You know, and, and I think really it showed in all the work we did over the years, you know, mm. that the relationship was very, very special. We were very, very close, Paul and I, very close. So what is the first rule of comedy? Did you, <laughs> nail, it, did you nail it down? Well, it was always different, wasn't it? <laughs> the first one was the, you, you, you must have reality. Come on, Spike, you must have reality. You know, that was it. Mm, mm. Uh, and the, never, never confuse your audience was another one. <laughs> <It's> all, <laughs> Poor old spy, I could never get anything right. Didn't, um, didn't they, the first episode, didn't the, wasn't there a reference to Coronation Street? Yes, of course, because he'd, he'd, he'd been for an audition. He was sitting on the train on a, on a, with me on our way to Maplins, and he said, I've been for this audition, about this television company doing a show about this mucky street. <laughs> in this mucky street, apparently I'm dead right for it. So he said, I think I've got it, you know. And of course, later on in the episode, he receives a letter, dear Mr. Bovis, sorry to inform you, etc., etc. <laughs> he hadn't got it. And he was heartbroken, but you know. And that, yes, it was a passing reference to Coronation Street. <laughs> Didn't actually name it, but uh, we all knew what it was. And you've been in Coronation Street, haven't you? I did one episode. Yes, I did one episode where I did two scenes with Craig Charles. Uh, oh, right. An HMRC inspector. I called on him to, uh, you know, to check on his taxes because he, he wasn't uh, doing his tax returns. Um, right. 
I called on him, and it was one most wonderful scene. And played this really. I wish they'd continued it. Actually, it was a lovely character. His name was Clive Drinkwater, and he was a tax inspector. And he he lived with his mum. He lived with his old mum. I'll say no more. Okay, right. Okay. <laughs> you know, and he was talking about how orderly she was, and all her Donald Decker O'Donnelly, um, uh, you know, CDs are all in absolute pristine order and everything. It was such a camp character. It really was fun to, fun to do. The street had a has has a long history of of characters of that type, doesn't it? Yes, yes. It was a it was a, a, a Craig Charles said to me afterwards. He said, "You know what you just did?" He said, "You just done a perfect example of of good old fashioned curry as it used to be." <laughs> you know, it was a com- comedy character, and it was. I played it played it for comedy. Yeah, yeah. And it really worked, but you know, they go. They didn't call me back. So no. Yeah. Well, just back quickly back to Heidi Hyde, two episodes that I always think about. <clears throat> I don't even, I don't think that I haven't, I should have watched, you know what, well, I should have done my research and rewatched them ahead of our call. Um, but um, the ones that stick in my mind is the the what the episode where there's the spot the bum competition. Oh, that's your bum. Yes. <laughs> With Yvonne looking Simon, like she's yeah. uh, sucking lemons. Simon couldn't say it. He couldn't get the word. <laughs> couldn't say it shall I say he couldn't say the name of it <laughs> and he, he had to pull the curtains to show it and the, the audience just shouted the name that's your bum <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not gonna like this Jeff shall I tell him well I don't see it makes any difference he's got to know know what Joe Maplin was on the blower first thing this morning oh. don't worry I come it up for you he's insisting we've got to do the bum competition <laughs> <laughs> the what did you ever see that program on telly called What's My Line? Occasionally. Well, we used to do one called That's Your Bum. <laughs> oh, hello, campers. Heidi, hi. <laughs> Jeffrey can't hear you. Heidi, hi. <laughs> yes. Well, now, we have for your entertainment and delight competition that has been brought brought back by popular request it was very popular last year um, although of course I, I wasn't here then this is my first season as, as you all know for God's sake get on with it but it was voted the most popular competition ever ever what's it called love <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a novel sort of thing yeah, but what is it? Yes, yes indeed. That's your... And here to tell you all about it is your... Um, and the other episode, which is probably my favourite that, I, could, that I, I, I think of, is the episode when... Ted gets offered this mucky film. Oh yeah, yeah. And one of my favourites. And Peggy, Peggy kind of gets involves herself. So so he gets all these male campers to put to pay what is it a quid a time a quid a pop. Yeah. And they're, they're going to show this film late at night in the ballroom or something. And Peggy turns up selling chalk eyes um, <laughs> because she thinks it's a film about brain surgery or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're all doctors yeah and uh, oh it was funny it's called it's a blue world ah, right yeah 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 and of course, but the big finish is because spike has found the film and he knows what it what it is and he swaps it and at the end you know you, you the police inspector says turn that projector on constable let's see what's going on here and he turns the projector on and all you hear is oh yeah I turn to Ted and say, well, here's another nice mess I've gotten you out of, Stanley. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, following Heidi High, you then went on pretty much straight away, I guess, to Urang, my lord. Yeah, the following year, we did the pilot of Urang, yeah. Now, I did, I I enjoyed that, but it took me a while to get into it. And I guess it's because it's such a tonal shift yeah, from Heidi High, and and I I remember very clearly watching the the first episode, and having to sort of recalibrate my expectations. I don't know because because Paul Paul was playing a completely different character. I mean, he was he was on the on the make. Yes, he was, but he was still playing a completely different character. And you 
with this or rather austere, rather severe character, not given to levity. Snotty. <laughs> Snotty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Biggest club in the house. Yeah, and, and it took me a while. I mean, I suppose um, Sue's character was similar in many ways to Peggy. Um, yeah, but, the underdog. Yeah, but it took it did take me a little while to, to I'll be honest, to warm to the app, to, to warm to the show, but I, I, I did in t- with time. You're not alone in that, you know, because it was so very, very different. Mm. People used to seeing us doing one of the difficulties we had in rehearsal when we were rehearsing the pilot episode. You know, Paul and I kept calling each other Ted and Spike instead of <laughs> Alf and James, you know. <laughs> we had to get used to that. But uh, how long did that go on for? How long did you four years with that? We, we only made 26 episodes, but they were 50 minutes long, you see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a 50 minute show. Very popular in Hungary. Very, very, very much so. We, we had a big event in 2018 and we went over there. I, I, it was actually my idea because I, I met some, a lot of Hungarians before that, uh, the year before. In fact, a, a whole load of them had come over, to, flew, flown over from Budapest to, to London to see me in my Stan Laurel show in, in German Street Theatre. Made the, made the effort to come and see my play. Uh-huh. Which, we all met up the following day outside the Meldrum House in Holland Park Villas, where we, we shot the pilot. And uh, we, I made a lot of really good friends. And I, I did a radio interview uh, for the Hungarians, um, which was translated by the, the, back into Hungarian by the actor who dubbed my voice in the show. <laughs> um, so, but, but it was suggested that, um, what are we going to do next year, which was 2018 coming up, uh, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the pilot episode, which we made in 1988. Uh, and I suddenly, it occurred to me, I said, well, look, why don't we all come over to Budapest and celebrate it with you? They said, leave it with us. And, you know, they, they sorted it out. They funded it. They crowdfunded the whole event, actually, mm. which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Because people were shelling out money and couldn't, I didn't realise it was so huge. And the, the the one thing that did happen on that, that particular occasion, we had, had nine hundred people in a huge room, which part of a university complex. And I got the costume. I, I kept the costume at the end of the series. I thought nobody's having this. It's mine. Yeah. And I I took it with me to Budapest and, and I put it on because they asked me if I'd take a tray of drinks on to the Hungarian actors who did the first half of the show, telling their own stories, the Hungarians who actually quite, were quite well-known in Hungary. Mm. They don't all have voices, you know. And um, the lady who was comairing the whole thing rang a bell and said, I think we need a drink, don't you? Rings a bell. And I walked on from the side with this tray of drinks dressed as James Twelve Trees. And the noise that that crowd made, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Honestly, I said, you know, because I, I got myself onto the front page of the Sunday Sun the other week from, from saying this to a journalist, you know, I could have been Elvis Presley. I could have been one of the Beatles for the noise they made. It was just extraordinary. And of course he, he put this on the front of the Sunday Sun. He said, you know, I'm Elvis in Hungary. Says, <laughs> says, you know, I didn't say that, but uh, you know, and it was amazing. Just uh, the ex- they took the roof off, they screamed the place down. And when I eventually did get managed to get them quiet and say, "You rang my lady," to to the compere, you know, they uh, I did leave the stage. And once I got into the wings, I just burst into tears. It was just totally overwhelming. I I, I didn't never felt so much love in one room. It was just amazing. They're mad about the show. They watch it's, it every day. It's on every day over there on television. It's weird, isn't it? So a bit like, I suppose it's a bit like um, the unaccountable popularity of, of uh, Norman Wisdom in Albania. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> an underdog thing, you know? Yeah. And their yeah. character was Mabel the Char. Oh, yes. Played by Barbara New. You know, it has been said, and I think it's probably true to say that the the analogy is that they, you know, they they recognize the two-tier social structure in within the show, uh, the the unfairness of it all, because they've spent decades under this the communist mm. thought. Mm. You know, and, and when when it was really when they were released from it, you know, they, they take a new remedy to their hearts because they, they see in the show what, what happened to them. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, well, it's it's just amazing. Get emails from them all the time. It's it's so lovely. It really is. Good. Um, 
I just want to quickly run through it because I want to talk to you because it's oh, this is a podcast about the goons and we haven't even mentioned the, <laughs> the goons yet. Um, but I just I like to to when I have guests like yourself on, I like to to run through the old CV. Yeah. Um, just a couple of quick things I wanted to discuss um, that you've been involved with as well. Uh, Kenny Everett television show. Oh yes, that was fun. I did three of those, I think. Yeah, and I'd see you 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 would pop up in sketches and things. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I'd be like, that's Spike from Heidi Hunt. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just wasn't expecting you <laughs> to turn up working with Kenny Everett for some reason. I came but if, on the weekend because I worked with the Russ Abbott shows, you know, as well. Over the, right. The but we one. never got Russ Abbott in New Zealand. We never got those, oh, right. those shows. Uh, Kenny Everett was very popular. Yeah. Um, and he must have been fun to work with. Oh, he was a very funny man. He really was a very funny man. Yeah. Uh, you know, so eccentric, but you know, really professional too. Very on the ball. But yeah. a lot to do in those half hours. He, you know, he was never, never off the off the ball. Never took his off the ball. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and Jeff, look, I didn't invite you on to criticise your <clears throat> your work, but what were you thinking of? Run for your wife? What were you, what were you thinking of appearing in that film? <laughs> oh no! All race chums appeared in that. You see, he asked everybody. Mm. He was so proud that he wanted to make this film. I don't think it was probably the wisest decision in the world because that's a very, very strongly established piece of theatre. And, and to make a film of it, it's, it's a, it, it's, it goes down a different route completely. Mm. But, you know, he did. He wanted to do it and they got it done. Uh, but he asked all of his chums if they'd be in it. And, the, you know, the, the, the bus on the way to the races is full of people like Frank Thornton and Donald Sindon. You know, they're, they're just extras. They're not, they don't speak, some yeah. of them. Bill Pertwee and you know and I got a part a speaking part as a reporter so I actually got a you know a proper a proper mini 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 fee for that <laughs> the other chubs got a, a bottle of pims and a box of chocolates you know as a thank you but he, Ray was so thrilled but, but none none of his chums said no to that they all appeared in it for him yeah yeah it was actually the last appearance that Richard Bryce ever made as well oh yes yeah 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 the original John Smith in uh, the West End did not be a wife in 82. And, and, and we were talking before we started recording, we mentioned, uh, we were talking about Dirk Mags and obviously Dirk was a yeah. guest on this show. And we we talked for so long, but we didn't have time to talk about um, a show, a radio show that he was involved with, uh, which uh, I enjoyed, uh, Inside Sasha. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was funny. Written by Stuart Silver. Wonderful. He's a Milligan-esque sort of chap, Stuart Silver. I haven't seen him for years. I don't even know if he's still writing. But uh, he wrote some weird, wonderful comedy for that. It was such fun to do. It really was. Very goon, very goon show inspired, I think, that show. Um, and the sound effects and the voices. And were you consciously, because there's, there's a few characters on there that you perform that were quite goonish and one character in particular had sort of shades of major blood knock were you consciously doing that it was a, my, my little homage to the goons and uh, and if the character fitted i i used to use it but I, you know i heard a clip you sent me with uh, to establish whether it was jeff mcgiven and he was mm -hmm. um uh, you know there's me in the background doing a blood knock shriek <laughs> oh there he is <laughs> oh, oh whatever I could, or, or a mini banister, ah, one of those, you know. <laughs> Nicely gets us on to the subject at hand. Um, you'd have been about four when the Goonsh, well, the, the first series, which was called Crazy People, That's was, right. was broadcast. Yeah. So I what's would... your history with, with your show itself in terms of listening to it? So I was never allowed to listen to the Goon Show on the wireless because my mum and dad didn't understand it. They thought it was rubbish because they didn't understand it <laughs> right. off their wavelength altogether. And I didn't come to the goon show until after Peter died in 1980. Oh. I oh. came to the goon show quite by accident by buying a little box set of cassettes, hmm. which were called Sellers at the Beep. Yeah. And uh, two of the cassettes included, well, there were three goon shows altogether. The man, the man who never was. Mm. Um, I can't remember what the others were, but it, it introduced me to the Goon Show as as a, as a show, and I was totally, literally, instantly hooked because I'd got I'd got all the records, you know, the Bloodlocks Rock and Roll Call Blues, and uh, in, I'm walking backwards for Christmas. I've got all the singles back in the sixties, 
when they when they came out. But uh, and so I sort of knew what the voices were like. But I, I never never had a, a, a ear for a goon show until the, after Peter's death. So I came to the goon and started to collect them avidly. And I've got every goon show ever ever published now on, on uh, CD, uh, thanks to the BBC. But you know, I, I just became a total addict straight away. It's odd for you being in the profession and say comedy and, and being the age you were to have come so late to the actual goon show. So you didn't yeah. even see the or hear the last goon show of all in the early 70s. No? Oh, yes, I've got that on um, I've got that on video. Yeah. I've but you didn't that. see that when it was when it was broadcast originally. No, well, no, I didn't. I didn't uh, no, because uh, again, it was not in my uh, brief. It wasn't part of my life. Mm -hmm. But I, I soon I soon picked it up and soon found it. And uh, I've got it on video now and I, I should keep it forever. Did you, I mean, did you, were you a fan of Peter Sellers' films? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I always was. I always have been a, a great, great admirer of Peter Sellers because mm -hmm. uh, I, I first heard him on the radio when he was doing things like Raise a Laugh with Ted Ray, you know, and uh, all the funny voices he used to do on that with Kenneth Connor and him, you know, and he, I was very, very much aware of Peter's. Oh, so you, you were allowed to listen to Raise a Laugh, but not the Goon Show? Oh, that's right. But that was Sunday lunchtime. Well, the, the, the beat was in the oven, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> they couldn't stop me listening. Another <laughs> good show was probably the evenings, and it was something that they they didn't care about at all. But mm -hmm. I was a bit of a big admirer of Peter Sellers' comedy work. You know, the eccentricness, as we say, of all the characters that he could play and all these vocal gymnastics that he used to trot out it was extraordinary. And and a very fine actor. Yes, indeed. Not just a comic actor, but an actor in general. I think he was at his best when he was performing. You know, because the, the Peter Sellers, um, the, you know, in real life was a little bit bland and, un, 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 well, I can't think of it, unimpressive. Yes. Uh, you look at some of the Michael Parkinson interviews that he did, and he did several. Mm. Of those. When somebody else is talking, he's listening, and you can see he, he almost goes into another dimension. He's, he sort of stops and turns off. But when he sits up and, you know, he perks up and he starts doing funny voices, you know, that's the, that's the performer, that's the artist, that's the cover fellow, you know, that's all the, the brilliant performing work. But the real Peter Sellers is a little bit on the bland side, I think. Well, he needed, he needed on chat shows, he needed a crutch, he needed something he could rely on, material, a bit that he could rely on yeah. to warm, warm himself up, if you like. And so that was why for the, for a period in the 70s, like on Parkinson, he would, he would enter wearing the German army helmet and doing That's that right. bit from the producers. Doing the same, yes, from the producers. Be because it was tried and tested material, which he knew would get a laugh. That's right. That's exactly it. He used, yeah. to, used to lean on things like that as a crutch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever meet Spike professionally? I, or? I met Spike once, uh, but I caught him on a bad day. Ah. I'm sorry to say. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was at a charity lunch for a, a, a children's charity. I think it was at the Dorchester Hotel in London. And uh, I was in the lobby uh, before the event actually started. And I saw Spike walking across the lobby. And I thought, oh, there he is, there's Spike Milligan. I'd better go and say him, I'd better just go and say hello and shake his hand. I might never get another chance because it was not, you know, quite, quite late on in, in his life. And I think I did the wrong thing. I, I stepped in front of him and stopped him. Right. And he, he, he started back and looked at me as if, who's this whippersnapper in my space? You know, and I thought maybe I got him on a, on a bad day. But I think I've learned since from Dirk and listening to Dirk on your show that he, you know, if you if you stopped Spike and got in got in his way through through his rhythm, uh, yeah. which I did, uh, yeah. you, it was awful. I just looked, shook his hand. He shook my hand, bless him, uh, and I just said I just wanted to say I'm much an admirer. I was I was tongue tied because he, you know, I could see he was in shock, and I stopped him, and uh, I said I just wanted to say how much uh, a, a big fan I am of yours. And uh, and then I said something rather stupid. I said, actually, I played a character called Spike in a, in a sitcom <laughs> for a, a few years. Uh, and he looked at me and was a pause. And then he said, how very interesting. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Anyway, I said, I just wanted to tell you how much a, a big fan of yours I am, and particularly of The Goon Show. I love The Goon Show. And he said... You must be very old. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> I'm a loser here. I think I better go. And uh, anyway, I, I just left him to it, and um, he couldn't. You know, he, I'd, I'd stopped him. I'd, I'd got in his way, and I yeah. think I wasn't ready for that. And uh, I just, I, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I met him. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever meet Harry or Mike Benteen? Or I knew Harry uh, socially more from charity do's again because. Mm. Uh, he knew me from Heidi High, you know. He called me Jeffrey. We, we called him Harry. And, uh, and I said, I was I was in the car listening to you just now in the doing the Goon Show because I used to keep the Goon Shows in the car, you know, on cassette mm. in those days. And I used to measure journeys in how many Goon Shows it took to get from A to B. <laughs> well, that's a five that's a five Goon Show journey. That one, <laughs> you know. And uh, Harry was lovely. He was such a nice man. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us where the beacon lighter lives? Oh, yes. Number 18A Gallows Lane. 18A Gallows Lane. Thank you, friend. Oh, you. Men, to horse! Wheels on fire. <laughs> Rolling down the Eighteen A Gallows Lane. It is. <laughs> so then you get this. What do you get? A phone call in early two thousand and one from, I'm guessing Dirk. Yeah. Suggest, to suggesting this restaging of some older Goon Show scripts Absolutely. for the fiftieth anniversary of the show. That's right. He wanted to do, get get this uh, tribute on. Um, for 2001 uh, as a 50th anniversary and then uh, Jim Moore, he, like he told you he said don't muck it up except he didn't use the word muck yeah. <laughs> and um, we did and uh, we we had a wonderful wonderful time because Dirk knew me quite well from inside Sasha from the Russ Abbott shows again we we did the whole radio series mm, Russ mm. and uh, Dirk directed those so he knew what I could do and um but I was more than more than happy. I couldn't believe my luck, actually, that I was going to get into a goon show and play all Peter Sellers' voices, which, uh, you know, some better than others, I have to be honest. You know, you didn't get a, a really good uh, blue bottle from me. Uh, I think you got a pretty good blood knock. Uh, yeah, that's a... Right. Blue bottle's such a hard one to nail. It's such a distinctive voice. And... Um, yeah. Very, I mean, Prince Charles does a makes a pretty decent fist of blue yeah, bottle. Suddenly, I've seen that film, piece of film where he's uh, he's pretending to be a, a little fella, and uh, it's, it's really, really clever. It's really, really good blood, uh, blue bottle. It's lovely. Yeah, I want to say when I first heard what became what was Goon again, what it became known as Goon again, yeah, um, it does take a few minutes to acclimatize to it, if you like. Oh. Like, for example, um, I re-listened to it um, ahead of my conversation with Dirk, and it took me a, a little while to, to forget, if you like, that it, that it, was, that it wasn't you three or four yeah. guys yeah. doing it. And yeah. just enjoy it for what it was. And, and um, it's, it's extremely well put together and well performed, and it's, it's funny. Edited too, it's brilliantly edited, you know, so cleverly put together. That that warm up, you know, the musical, the the musical intro, where we all sing. Uh, yes. God, yeah, well, whatever. And uh, all that was just intended to be a warm up for for us and for the audience. It wasn't intended to be part of the show, but it went down so well. Dirk was so pleased with it, he left it in as part of the of part of the show, and the whole thing went off, you know, brilliantly and got everyone off to a good start. And then we went into the show proper. You know the half an hour of talking and wonderful having Ray uh, Ray Ellington's son Lance there. Yes, sing one of his dad's songs exactly like Ray, exactly yeah. like him. It was wonderful. So, so when this was suggested to you by Dirk, um, did you have any doubts? Did you take oh, time no. to think about it? Oh, I snatched his arm off. I was absolutely thrilled with the idea. I couldn't wait. What a great, what a fabulous thing to do, to be able to do a, a good show. It was, it was one of the happiest evenings I've ever spent in a theatre in my life. Yeah, yeah. The John Wilson Orchestra there. You know how big John Wilson's become now, the proms and everything. Yeah. You know, he was just on his way up then. And he was, Dirk said, Angela Morley suggested him because he knew uh, that uh, Angela, Angela Morley knew John Wilson. That's right. Uh, and um, 
Uh, and he was absolutely brilliant. And Dirk had to say, how many mics do we need as 17-piece orchestra? How many mics are we going to need? And uh, John said, oh, well, only four. Yeah. Dirk said, what? What? Only four? He said, well, yes, we're a self-balancing orchestra. We <laughs> listen to each other and we don't overlap, we don't overplay. And he's absolutely right. They only needed four mics, one of which was on the drum kit. But the rest were on one on the brass, one on the uh, woodwind, and you know, uh, it was just extraordinary. The, 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 using the original dots, which you know, was a great story that Dirk told about how they they got the music from the archives and uh, re reprinted it. Yeah. yeah, it was it was in a, a pretty poor state, wasn't it? Because oh yeah. yeah, conditions. So, what was your process for? <laughs> this sounds slightly loveyish here, but what was your process for finding the characters? Oh, I knew them all. I knew them all, but before I even started, mm. I knew I've been doing the voices for years, just for the hell of it, you know, just for fun. Mm. So I was doing Henry Brown and, and Blood Knock, just for fun for myself all those years ago. Blue Bottle was a bit of a struggle, but I sort of, I sort of gave the impression of a, a Blue Bottle. <laughs> blue Duck Bottle dot com. Yeah. <laughs> that line about David Beckham was. was oh, it was funny. Funny, wasn't it? Yeah. Paul Minette and Brian Leveson, who, who script edited the whole thing, they added that in. And for one or two of the lines, Beckham being <laughs> upset he wasn't asked to play Blue Bottle. <laughs> it would have been perfect. <laughs> and John Glover was excellent as well. Yes, he was. John's timing is fantastic. John Glover's timing is amazing. He's you know, right in the middle of a scene where we suddenly forget about Eccles. And in the middle of a scene, John Glover just chipped in and said, I'm still up here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd forgotten where Eccles was and he was up in the post nest. <laughs> oh, here, here, here. What is it, look out? They're firing at the crow's nest. Are you in it? I'm right in it, mate. <laughs> well, come down here. OK. Oh. Why didn't you climb down the rigging? Oh, mate, it's not for me to reason why. <laughs> Tis for me to do and, um, what's the word I'm... Oh, no, um, no, no, Simon Eccles. Yeah? You mean, tis not for me to reason why, tis for me to do and... Okay. Well, he didn't say it, but he done it pretty good. <laughs> it made me laugh. Oh, it was me John. I've done a lot of radio with John. It's great, great pal. And, and Andrew Seacombe, what was it like, what was it like oh. working with him? So, you know, at the end of the show, um, I, I thought, what's the matter with him? He's, he's a little bit low key. But at the end of the show in the dressing room, he, he wrapped his arms around his wife and burst into tears. Yeah. And I didn't realize that Harry was so ill at that time. And it was only yeah. days after that he died. And, yeah. and Andy knew that. And he'd been told, you know, by, as Dirk told you, he said, think of it as taking over the family business, you know, when he'd been asked yeah. to play Son of Ned. Mm. Um, which he did, and he did it so well. He did it with, as a tribute voice to his dad. But he, he, cho he choked him all, all evening, all the, all the way through it. He was, he was emotionally quite strained because yeah. of it. You know. But he got through it, and it's, it's lovely what he do does with Ned. Tribute to his dad, it was lovely. What sort of reaction did you, did you get? A lot of reaction from people after the show went out? Oh, well, my favourite reaction was in the in the bar afterwards when we all went and had a drink. And there was a, a lot of celebs in the audience, Barry Cryer being one of them. Mm. And Barry Cryer came up to me full of it, absolutely full of it. And he just looked at me straight in the eye and he said, that was spot on, he said, spot on. So, I mean, that was my favourite reaction for the whole, the whole event, you know. Praise, um, praise from Caesar. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. And you couldn't get, you know, higher praise than that from Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you have been up for doing more of those? Oh, I, I wanted to. You know, Dirk struggled for years to try and get uh, the show on, on, on the road, to try and get a version of it on, on the road. As do, we could do a tour. But he, he had to have the live music. And, of course, that's a very expensive business. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it just didn't work out. And, and Norma, Norma Farns, uh, Spike's manager, who sort of owns The Goon Show, got in the way a bit and was a bit mm. obstructive mm. so we, we were never able to take it out uh, on the road but uh, Dirk just said let's just remember that wonderful night in the theatre at the playhouse and uh, and think how lucky we were to to have gotten done that so I, I just take that on board and uh, just wallow in that now mm -hmm. we have done it we did it and it's there to listen to whenever we want to it's amazing how 
because it's now 21 years since since that occurred it is, it is indeed. <laughs> um but and and you know this podcast has been going now for just over a year uh-huh. um and it's amazing how many people are out there who still have uh, a real affection for the for the goon show and for yeah. and for particularly for sellers and milligan let's, yeah. let's let's be fair um, but how many people of you know younger younger generations if you like recent guest was a, a young lady in her mid-20s okay um, really? and i've had i've had a lot of guests who are in their 40s or 30s well if, if i could draw an analogy there with heidi high but anybody the same sort of thing going on because i'm getting fan mail and from people that weren't born when we were making Heidi High. Uh, and it's the same thing's happening with the Good Show. You see, it's, it's timeless, timeless comedy. It's still very, very funny. And it will always make people laugh. And if you find it, you know, young people coming to the Goon Show, I think is a wonderful thing. Because I'm getting uh, fan mail now from kids. And uh, we did a Heidi High event a few months ago. And there was a little girl there who was six years old. She was there with her mum. And her mum's a huge fan, but her mum wasn't born when we were making Heidi High. But she, this little girl called Tia, and she was a tiny little thing. She knew she, her mum says she knows every word of every script of Heidi High. And she's that small and that young. So, you know, that says a lot about the, the quality of, of good, good comedy. And it's the same with The Good Show. You know, people are coming to it in, in, uh, as young people now, picking it up, and it, it just says it, says it all about the quality of it. You know, and why not? Let's keep it alive. Well, that is, I mean, that's heartwarming, that, that the show is still, that Heidi High is still... Well, yeah. It, it's, it's still finding new generations. Um, about The Good Show, The Good Show is doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, so what, what we, we mentioned... Um, Laurel and Hardy earlier. Now you've you've been you've had this one man show, the Stan Laurel show. Yeah. Um, are you are you still doing that at the moment? Or, or I, oh, yes, I've, I've got to be doing a bit more of it later on in the year, October and November. <clears throat> I've got some bookings uh, to pick up on, uh, but yes, it's uh, it's an ongoing thing for me. Um, as long as I can still walk and still breathe and talk, <laughs> something I wanted to do for a long, long time, and I had to wait until I was the right age. Yeah. It's I got the idea back in the 70s when uh, Laurel and Hardy were being shown on TV again, uh, early evening by the BBC. And uh, my, my love for them, which had been, you know, since I was a very small boy watching them on the Saturday morning picture shows, um, yeah, my love for them was rekindled at that time. And I thought, well, it's, it would be a wonderful idea to do a one-man show about Stan Laurel, because I knew all about his life and the story of his life. And it was a fascinating tale to tell. <clears throat> but I knew I had to wait, because I was only a young man then, and you can't do a life story when you haven't had a life. You know, so I, I literally waited over for 40 years to get that show on. And it, it all fell into place at exactly the right time, and it should. And I've been doing it for 10 years now. Next year will be 10 years. There's that, that, that story about... Peter Sellers meeting Stan Laurel. Oh yeah. In, in Hollywood. Yes, he went and called on him. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of remember the details, but essentially so Stan Laurel was quite old, elder, elderly by yeah. this point. And I guess his memory was a he was maybe, you know, not as sharp as as he had been. And Sellers was um tactfully you know uh talking about the old films and yes. the rest of it yeah. and then i think sellers couldn't remember the name of a a supporting actor who often appeared in the laurel hardy films right. okay um not um what's the name james finlayson not him but um someone else who charlie hall possibly uh, <laughs> i can't remember myself who it was but Ch- but sellers was trying to remember the name of of this this actor that would regularly appear in the Lauren Hardy yeah. shorts and things. And he says to Stan Laurel, he said, who's that guy? Who's that? Who's that actor that you used to, um, he used to appear in your films. Uh, can't remember his name. Really funny, um, rather large fella. And Stan Laurel sort of thought for a minute and he went, Oh, do you mean Oliver Hardy? <laughs> <laughs> I think he meant Tiny Sanford. Who knows? <laughs> Four, quite a big fellow, yeah. 
Um, so, so what, what, what? Apart from that, are you you, you were doing a, uh, involved with a podcast series, Barmy Dale. Yes. Oh, that's great fun. That is great fun. Yeah, I get to play the vicar and Judy, my wife, she plays the vicar's wife in it as well. So we're doing some live shows of that a bit later sure. in the year. Okay. Yeah, the Fulham Arts Centre. We're doing we're recording in front of a, a live audience like they used to do with radio shows. You know? Absolutely. I'm saying podcasts are the future, it seems. Mm. Um, uh, any 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 other plans, any any other work in the pipeline? Well, uh, we're doing. We're in the middle of a, a little tour, which we're picking up again in September, uh, called the Best of British TV Comedy, uh, and Judy and myself and Sue Hodge from Hello Hello hmm. are in that. Uh, which it's like a chat show, really. Debbie Hud, Roy Roy Hud's widow, she's chairing it, and she asks asking the questions. Uh, we've got me and Judy, because uh, Judy's done an awful lot of TV comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Hodge, of course, doing musical stuff and everything. Uh, and a, a lady called April Walker, who people won't know her, her name. Heidi High. High. No, 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 that was Linda Regan playing April. No, this is a lady called, called April Walker, who is um, my age, actually, and she's been in every sitcom you could ever imagine, you know, Forty Towers and um, Two Ronnie, she did a lot of work with. And she's got stories to tell, really. And it's all about the people we've worked with and telling stories about all the comedy we've been in, basically. That's what the show's about. So we're doing a few more of those in September, October as well. Oh, great. So that'll be fun. I'm trying to, um, I'm just trying to, her name rings a bell, and I'm just trying to bring up a April. Walker. Yes, right. April Walker was in that episode of Faulty Towers. That's right. With um, because he and the boyfriend aren't married. Basil tries to put them in separate rooms. That's right. And it's the and her her boyfriend is the chap from The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, who always used to say, "Great." That's, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh well, listen, Jeff. Um, I've taken up too much of your time. It's been it's been a joy. Thank you. Well, for me so, too so much for for taking the time to speak to me today you want um, to something as, as a tribute to this conversation play blood Knox entrance from Goon again because that was my favorite moment of the whole evening doing blood Knox entrance i will do that i will i, I mean i do i put clips and everything i will put that at the beginning thanks again to jeff thank you for listening please rate review subscribe go back and listen to all the old shows in the archive uh, if you haven't heard them uh, uh, please spread the word, recommend to friends, uh, anyone who likes old British comedy, this is the show for them. Uh, just a quick word about the Goon Show Preservation Society, which I haven't mentioned for uh, some time, actually. Uh, please do join if you haven't already become a member. You get access to uh, the mighty Encyclopedia Goonicus. Also, their quarterly newsletters. There's also a brand new website due to be launched in the next month i think duncan gray has been uh, putting together building a, a brand new fresh looking state-of-the-art 21st century website for the gsps um i've actually had a, had a chance to have a look at some of it and it looks really good what i've seen so far so i will keep you updated on the progress of that uh it might even be up and running by the time this show goes out so uh more information can be found if you follow the uh, Goon Show Preservation Society Twitter feed. They're at the GSPS. And uh, in the meantime, I will bid you adieu and see you next week with a brand new show. Take care of yourselves. Bye. <laughs>